Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Richard Newman. He is a professor of history at the Rochester Institute of Technology, and he's the author of Abolitionism. I hope I don't keep on doing that. A very short introduction, which is available from Oxford University Press. It's part of their now enormously large library of very short introductions, uh, which are beloved of undergraduates, uh, high school history teachers, professors who are busily preparing the night before to give a lecture, and graduate students uh, who are studying for comps and want to get the facts right. Um, so, Richard, thank you for being with us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on. Um, so, I this is a short book. Um, it is, uh, for those of us who've written uh, dissertations, we begin to get... Um, garrulousness. Uh, we get uh, verbal logorrhea when we approach the page. Um, all of a sudden, what had been formidable, 95,000 words, is basically a year's worth. Uh, it's a, a gentle trot. It's a canter. Yep. Uh, 115,000 words. 150,000 words is now all of a sudden becomes possible. How did you, I don't know how many words are in this book, but every sentence has a purpose. How did you write so short? I just have to ask you that technical question at the beginning. Well, it's a great question. And for anyone writing a very short introduction, I think you have to be able to answer it. The The word limit for this book is 35,000 words. Really? And I fought tooth and nail to get every word I could because yeah. the initial draft was something like 45,000, which is still short, as you say, for people who are trained in the history profession. When I wrote the first draft of my first chapter for my dissertation with the legendary William Freeling, I believe that first chapter was about 25,000 words or something like that. It was 80 pages. <laughs> I filled it with all this great footnote material. I wanted to prove to him and the world all the research that I did and how it was going to change our understanding of early abolitionism. And uh, I sent it off to him, and he called me back the very next day. And he said, I'm not reading an 80-page chapter. You're going to cut this in half, maybe longer. You're going to thank me in the long run. Yeah. It's going to be tough in the short run, and I literally almost cried on the phone because I thought I spent so many months trying to write this big, huge, impressive chapter. So to write a, basically an entire book on abolitionism that was only a little bit longer was daunting. And I will say that uh, not a day goes by where I, I don't think to myself, well, I wish I sh could have included that or I should have done that. Sure. But, you know, the challenge is part of the fun. You want to try to distill some of the essential meaning of this grand and important movement down into a kind of really easy to digest and understand thesis and book. And hopefully I did that. The additional challenge, though, is that we know so much more about the abolition movement these days, not yeah. only in terms of topic, more about African-Americans, women. Uh, there's debates about sexuality. There's debates about reparations. But just in terms of time and uh, space, yeah, as it's, go back further and across continents now. As it's clear from a very short introduction, uh, abolitionism is... Well, there's a problem of definition, which we'll, we'll get to in a second, but it's a huge, sprawling, it's not a house, it's a barn, it's a warehouse, and there's so many intersections of, of things in it, it, which makes it obviously very fascinating for the reader and for the person who's writing the book, for the scholar. Um, but this does have an argument. You do have an argument. This is not a textbook. Um, this is not a pudding without, without a theme. Right. Um, what's your argument? Well, 
The first argument is that abolitionism is the first social movement in transatlantic society, and that's really significant because it tells us that even early abolitionists in the 1700s were doing something radical, that African Americans who challenged enslavement in the 1600s, early 1700s, were uh, trying to confront a global economic system that was powerful, defensive, and able to withstand all sorts of challenges. Uh, it tells us that uh, women and men were going into new protest modes and uh, political venues and the social arena. Uh, but scholars for many years didn't think of abolitionism as a social movement. They thought of it as a kind of isolated cause relegated to uh, certain corners of New England society or more recently we've talked about African Americans who have challenged uh, slavery from uh, its kind of first from genesis. Its, from its inception. Yes, uh, on, uh, on the transatlantic seas. And what I want to do is bring those things together and say what you have is a movement that matures politically, ideologically, and socially all at the same time in the 1700s. So that it thinks of itself as a movement, a mm -hmm. movement that's focusing not only on stopping slavery, but redefining rights across racial lines, yes. across gender lines. Um, and so it's very recognizable as not only the first social movement, but the first civil rights movement. And once you do that, that allows you to re-examine the revolutionary era. This isn't an era where a few abolitionists are gently testing whether or not uh, anti-slavery philosophy will fly. They're fundamentally challenging the definitions of politics and race and economics that are undergirding uh, the era of revolutions, the building of nation states. Um, during the 19th century, as the American economy grows, the abolition movement grows with it, mm -hmm. spreads out geographically, and again, challenges fundamentally the definition of American identity. I was, I was thinking, in terms of political and intellectual culture, as I was, as I was meditating on this, it seems to me that in many ways, um, one of the consequences of your argument is that these sorts of movements, the abolition movement, this sort of social, a self-conscious social reform movement, mm -hmm. is a consequence of the establishment of a liberal order. I think yeah. that's what a political philosopher would say. Yeah. I think that maybe was a, a political a historian of political culture would say. It seems yeah. it's immediately, as soon as there's even the glimmer of a of a liberal order, it this is exactly at the same time as as Locke is writing, but all the the various elite. 17th century English reformers and all the rest of this thing, this movement begins. It's yes. it's part of it. It's not thrown out by it. It grows up along with it. Absolutely. And so you can argue that it's part of a liberalizing order. And I think that's absolutely right. You could also say it's part of a modernizing trend. Yeah. The key here is that the people who are doing the I'm modernizing are uh, not the folks we often associate with abolition. Yeah, so they're, I'm, I'm they're less African Americans, yeah. the women, as well as your classic um, radical thinkers. So Anthony Benazet is a traditional. Let's get to him in a mo okay. minute. I want to. I want to. I want to first define abolition. I, I'm less comfortable with the modernizing idea. Okay. Because I spend too much time reading slave masters, mm -hmm. and they are convinced they're modernizers. Yes. Moder of modernizers is such a, but they are not. Right. What they don't claim to is being liberal in the sense that freedom is the highest yes. necessity of human of, of humankind yes. that's what I what I would mean by liberal order that yeah. it's, it's an ordered an order of politics but also of society which is dedicated towards the freedom of the individual yeah well this is why abolition is such a great topic to study because it shows you that abolitionists are part of all these debates that yeah. accompany uh, the rise of the nation state the age of revolutions 
um, a liberalizing economy and society, and, and I would argue, yes, modernization. In each one of those cases, right, slaveholders argue that the revolution is for them because it's about protecting property rights. Mm -hmm. But abolitionists say the revolution is for us because it's about liberating humanity. If you think about the rise of the nation state, slaveholders argue the nation state is supposed to protect not only our property rights but our political interests. Abolitionists dissent from that. And what I, the reason I think modernity or modernizing is an important concept here is that from the age of revolution uh, until the final abolitionist acts in uh, colonial Spain and uh, Brazil mm -hmm. in the late 19th century, you have people speaking across continents and across the ages about the same things, rights and liberties. Mm -hmm. And they associate that with a modernizing uh, economy and a modernizing society. So you can look at Brazilian abolitionists who are saying, look, we're out of step with modernity because we're holding on to slaves. That's very much the way that abolitionists in the late 18th century start articulating uh, the meaning of their cause. Black as well as White abolitionists say, look, if your revolution, if your nation state is about a step forward, about advancing human rights, about modernity, then you've got to get rid of this thing called slavery because it's part of the past. Now, people dissent from that. No, we but I, I think it's really important to say that um, abolitionists are charting this uh, new dialogue about what a modern liberal democratic society is about. It's about uh, equals. It's about people crossing gender, racial lines, lines of status. Um, it's about a free and open press. And I think we often take for granted that those things are there and then abolitionists join them, as opposed to the idea that abolitionists, from the moment that their movement coalesces in the age of revolutions, help also create right. that modernizing liberal order. And for lots of complex reasons, as, as it's clear, in, yeah. even in a very short introduction, that a lot of these things are necessary and sometimes unintended consequences yeah. of the of the movement for uh, freedom for enslaved people. Yeah. Um, so how do we define abolitionism? Well, I say, you know, there's a lot of ways to define an abolitionist. It's someone who could strike out at slavery like a slave rebel. It could be a reformer, a religious reformer, a political reformer who dedicates their life to the cause. It could be someone like Abraham Lincoln who never joined an abolition society but issued uh, perhaps the greatest emancipation edict of the 19th century. So what I try to do is to get beyond some of these labels and say that anyone who committed an uh, important part of their life to ending slavery was an abolitionist and that the movement brought together different groups of abolitionists into some, into some sort of uh, coherent whole. I think it's important to make that point because there's this debate right now in the field. Manisha Sinha's magnificent and massive book, a Slave's The Slave's Cause, really tries to argue that um, there's no social movement guiding abolitionism. It's this whole interconnected series of activist people uh, across continents who are engaging in a fight to the death of slavery. And I think there's a lot to be said for that. But in other words, anyone who does anything mm. to strike at slavery could be classified as an abolitionist. And I would say that, yes, that might be true, but we also have to focus in on the way that there is an abolitionist movement and an abolitionist cause. And there's a lot of movement back and forth. The cause is a much broader kind of perspective on why slavery is wrong. And a movement is trying to create concerted action on a month-to-month, week-to-week, annual basis. So we might say, for example, 
a lot of people were involved in the civil rights cause in the 20th century. They didn't like racial injustice. They might have even marched in some things, but how many people joined the civil rights movement? Right. Joined an organization that petitioned, um, engaged in not just one protest, but several. This, I think, is what brings us back to the power and importance of abolition as a social movement, because you have different groups of people coming together to organize protest and make it a part of mainstream politics and society. So, mm -hmm. you know, we can talk about this more later, but it's not just Quakers who are organizing early abolition. It's African-Americans who are protesting, too, and looking for allies who can carry their mm -hmm. voices into politics. And when those two people join forces, they're much more powerful. They're still a very small part of the group that's attacking slavery. Mm -hmm. And we can never forget that because they have to find ways to build out the movement. They have to persuade. Exactly. They have to persuade. Exactly. So they have to publish more. They have to petition more. They have to organize more. That takes a lot of work. And that takes groups. That takes uh, money. That takes all the things that social movement scholars talk about. These things don't just happen. So by the time you get to a discussion of a cause, um, you're already presupposing there's a movement there. Who's publishing slave narratives? Who is disseminating them? Who is talking about new emancipation laws? Who's representing enslaved people in courts of law? Not just in a, you know, in a piecemeal basis, but who has a kind of um, whole legal theory about representing enslaved people? Uh, this all gets us back to abolition as a social movement, and it's there um, in a very recognizable form by the 1760s, and it doesn't disappear until the 1880s when uh, Brazil abolishes bondage. So for that century, you're really talking about the power of an abolitionist movement. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the first hundred years. Yeah. And which are, two, as I was reading through, it seems to be marked by two things. One is the, the, inf the, the indelible influence of the Society of Friends, or the Quakers, on the abolition, abolitionist movement, which is complex influence. I'll get, get to that in a second. And also the formation of, let's call them African-American um, institutions, re yes. inst Republican institutions. Right. Um, Quakers first. So how would you, you actually have a very precise moment when that begins in, amongst the Society of Friends, this sort of abolitionist drive. When is that? The first century of abolition is defined by the pre-century before that, where Quakers in the 1680s in North America begin questioning the religious foundation for enslavement. So in 1688, you get the Germantown protest mm -hmm. by a very small group of Quakers outside of Philadelphia. Yes. What they're doing is really carrying forward some of the voices of people of African descent that they have encountered who are uh, protesting bondage in their own ways. And they channel that into this petition. But, you know, you move forward the decades by the 1750s and 1760s, uh, Quakers have undergone a series of discussions internally about whether they can turn those anti-slavery ideas into abolitionist policy, mm -hmm. uh, policy that's just aimed at Quakers. And Quakers do that with a ban on slave trading in the 1750s and then a ban on slaveholding in the 1770s. Now, there are a couple. It, there's a, there's, first, there's an, an ideological, theological drive for this, which yeah. is the, the idea, the Quaker idea of the inner light, yep. and that all people have the inner light, yep. and it needs to... Uh, which either reflects or is divine. Yeah. Um, reflects the divine. It depends on what kind of Quaker you are, perhaps. Yeah. That and that gives you a powerful impetus to be an abolitionist. All right, first of all, but it's more than that. Um, as you point out at the beginning of the conversation, abolitionism is a transatlantic movement, and so are Quakers. Yes. And yes. so the Quakers are 
apparently spend most of their time uh, writing each other, at least as, as I yeah, always, yeah. and connecting with one another. Absolutely. And that leads to third, although they're not into politics, they kind of actually are. Yeah. I mean, obviously, William Penn is one of the, let's call him one of the supreme politicians of the, we could argue, of the 17th century, in that he's creating a political space in which the Society of Friends can exist peaceably. Um, and Quakers are really good at lobbying. Yeah. And all those three things, an interlight, transatlantic connect, excellent communication networks, and political lobbying come together into the abolition movement, right. it seems to me. And there's there's even a... A fourth? <laughs> well, a, it might prefigure each yeah. one of those things, and I, and I love that uh, breakdown, but they're oppressed. Yeah. Quakers understand what oppression yes. is. They understand what social and political stigma is because they're religious dissenters. They believe in a different version of the gospel, which flows from the inner light. Yeah. So they don't doff their cap to their betters. Um, they practice a very different version of religious witness where anyone can preach if they're filled with the Spirit. Um, women preach. Yes, women preach. Poor men preach. Uh, a Quaker meeting can be silent until someone speaks. And so in that sense, uh, when Quakers find themselves on the wrong end of the political and social stick in England, and yes. uh, they're stigmatized and castigated, uh, and they flee, uh, they understand what uh, oppressive policies look and feel like. Mm -hmm. And in that way, they're, from, they're, they're sensitive to some of the protests. That That's interesting. That and there's also a way in which, um, and this is very opaque to us now, yeah. there's a way in which, too, um, Quakers have a material difference that anyone in the, in the 17th or 18th century would notice. It's, as I say, opaque to us because they dress differently. Um, everyone knows who a Quaker is. In the same way, because racial slavery is for black people, you yeah. know who a slave is. Yeah. But likewise, in, 18, in the 18th century, you're just as prone to know who a Quaker is. Absolutely. They speak differently. The thee and thou, the use of the, the first, the second person familiar, the exactly. insistence on that, which right. we don't understand what that means now, because it, in some ways, I almost think it dropped out of the usage because it was Quaker. Sure. Um, all these things make Quakers a recognizably different person in society in the way that we would now see Amish is different. Yeah, and so to say be a thou yeah. back in the day was really a way of striking out at uh, social status. At hierarchy. I don't recognize your hierarchical position. Right. Everyone is equal in the eyes of God, Refu including enslaved people. They're refusing. I mean, if you watch the first season of Downton Abbey, you'll see something a lot closer to the 18th and 17th century than, right. you know, the pulling at the forelock when you don't have a hat on, um, when you would remove the hat. That's what the Quakers were fighting against. Yeah. Um, uh, that's what they found offensive. But you're raising another point here, which is about alliances. And this yeah. is, again, why the abolitionist movement makes so for, makes for such a powerful story today. Because if you're trying to change society and you're looking at things like immigration, protecting immigrants, you're looking at identity politics, protecting people who are uh, redefining their identity. What you're really talking about is how can these different groups align themselves? What common thread brings them together? And it's often either oppression or stigmatization, mm -hmm. right? Every group has its own grievances, but they become more powerful when they align themselves. And that alignment creates some sort of ideology mm -hmm revolves around rights and liberties or access to institutions, whatever. And that's exactly what happens in the early days of the abolitionist movement. Um, African-descended people have been struggling against bondage on the high seas, on West African shores, in 
all sorts of colonial settlements from the 1500s onward. Mm -hmm. um, they say in the book, the first slave rebellion occurs uh, in the New World in the 1520s. So there's nothing new by the time you get to Denmark VC or Nat mm -hmm. Turner. Um, but what is new is this idea that you have alliances crossing racial lines, lines of status, lines of ethnicity. And so when Quakers listen to, because they're involved in the slave trade, because they've been oppressed, uh, when they listen to people of African descent and try to uh, join with them in um, protesting against an unjust institution, now you've got a bond that is a little more formidable. This is, and what's also interesting, and I hadn't thought of it until just a second, is, is that um, the creation of slavery as a legal and, and social cultural institution in Virginia it's basically 1670 to 1705. 1705, yeah. you've got the codes, uh, which will, Carolina's codes are different. Any South Carolina colonial historian will tell me, but in a way that the, uh, the, the 1705 laws are a template for everything that will exist until 1865. Yes. Um, yes. and you've got racial slavery, chattel slavery in its 90% of it is down on paper by that time. There'll be, there'll be changes made around the edges. Right. From 1670 onwards, at the same time that's happening, you've got increasing expulsion of Quakers from Virginia. Many of them are in the Chu family, for example, yeah. which are who are slaveholders. Yes. But they become Quakers in Virginia. George Fox visits Virginia. There are people, and they are expelled or they move to mm -hmm. Maryland and Delaware and Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. And that's an interesting, they also have felt expulsion and they've seen mm -hmm. the creation. Now, they benefit from slave society. The Jews, of course, become Anglicans rather than free their slaves, uh, rather yeah. than remain Quakers. But there are other people, Dickinson's, it's a little iffy um, on that. But they're, yeah. that's part of that story too, I think. At least within a very narrow, within a Chesapeake, mid-Atlantic framework. Well, you know, what I think of when you make that really interesting point is that abolition always relies on um, luck as much as good yeah. works and strange bedfellows yes. as much as organic alliances. Um, Abraham Lincoln was not the great emancipator before 1863, but yet you can't deny that the Emancipation Proclamation fundamentally reshapes the nature and meaning of the Civil War, even if Lincoln himself has to constantly be pushed. Similarly, Quakers were knee-deep in the slave trade and in slaveholding, but because of their religious scruples, that gives them mm. um, a front-row seat into the injustices. Right. You know, some of the uh, Quaker activists that are best known to us, like Benjamin Lay, um, John Woolman, John Woolman, they come from communities where slavery and the slave trade are fully operational, and they they and their communities benefit from that. And yet they are torn. Their conscience is just saddled with doubt and guilt. So Woolman's conversion experience on that comes with, when he has to write as a as a sort of a notary. I think he has to yeah, write a slave contract. Exactly. And Benjamin Lay, you know, he he like others understands that Quaker wealth flows from the Caribbean mm -hmm. up to uh, the North American colonies and overseas. And so if Quakers view themselves as outside the norm and dissenters, Benjamin Lane wants to say, no, you're pretty much um, participating mm -hmm. in mainstream economic institutions which are unjustly uh, enslaving others. So that's why Quakers can become allies with African-descended people. A group of dissenters within Quakerism says, our religious scruples don't really allow for bondage 
and we need to listen to enslaved people who are protesting, and we need to bring their voices into the mainstream of society. And that's what you see by the 1760s. Anthony Benizet yeah. is so important, not just because he's a religious radical mm. and writing to people, but because he goes out onto the docks in Philadelphia and other places and interviews slave traders and former slaves and people with memories of Africa, and he collates these things, mm -hmm. and he talks about the way that Slavery is uh, not preordained the way that uh, wars in African society are fomented by slave traders, uh, the horrors of separating families. All of this comes from oral testimony. It's sort of like Anthony Benizet and his pamphlets are uh, using the public as a courtroom. I put together this evidence. Now you in the public will see these people speaking about the horrors that they've experienced and witnessed. Mm -hmm. um, and and Benazay is further radical because he's writing during the Seven Years' War when there is an uptick in uh, white slavery. Uh, Native allies with the French and, and others uh, participate in a different form of bondage that scholars know about but the public doesn't. Um, and so Benazay takes these stories of white captivity and he throws them back against, um, uh, against mainstream readers and says... So here's what I was reading. Someone who was captured in western Pennsylvania, Ohio country, was enslaved to Native Americans and said, this was horrible. I was separated from my family. Mm -hmm. um, I lost, you know, my identity. Uh, I felt like I was going to die. He says, is this any different than any of the stories I've heard from African-descended people? So he's really magnificent at bringing these different stories together and creating new alliances. Let's talk about... Uh, the African-Americans with whom Quakers began to ally. And yeah. uh, this gives me an opportunity to talk about two of my favorite founding fathers, uh, Richard Allen and, and James Fortin. I mean, Richard Allen, I mean, really, I, yeah. I think yeah. I, I take the idea of founding fathers seriously. Yes. And I think Rich, I Richard, Richard Allen is about one of the most notable of them. Yeah. He, if you're a founder, if you're creating Republican institutions, then by golly, right. He's one of the foremost founding fathers in American history. And so is James Fortin as well. Right. And they think of themselves as they part do. of an abolitionist movement. They're not allowed to formally join the Pennsylvania Abolition Society, which was started by Anthony Benizet um, and is dominated by Quakers. But they feel as if they have a moral perspective on the American founding. And that's why I appreciate what you're saying. Their founding fathers or founding figures uh, in the sense that they're trying to create this moral template for American society. Yeah. Slavery's wrong, everyone's equal, and democracy will only be successful insofar as it transcends uh, the racial divisions that Descri have been sort of exemplified during the 1770s and 1780s. So Rich Allen's born in slavery. He's born in slavery. In Delaware. Yep. We think in Delaware, possibly in Philadelphia. Yeah. I, I go back and forth in, in my biography of Richard Allen on that. But... Um, he liberates himself from slavery after coming to the sway of Methodist preachers. Uh, he believes that the gospel is anti-slavery, moralistic, doesn't countenance bondage. Um, he believes, like Quakers, that um, the Christian gospel also predicts a kind of interracial harmony and brotherhood. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things come powerfully together in his person. Uh, he buys himself out of bondage, becomes an anti-slavery itinerant, and commits himself to trying to reform American society. By the late 1780s, he's living in Philadelphia, and as he um, commits to building uh, a, a Methodist church there, mm. uh, he encounters racism. Yes. So he's already kind of um, shaped an anti-slavery future. Now he confronts racism in the house of the Lord. He's not allowed to sit in the 
uh, White's only pews, and he engages in the first sin in American culture. Mm-hmm. I, I like to say, uh, and I wrote this in a, in a recent little essay uh, called Alan's Knee, he's the first person who ever took a knee to protest racial injustice in American society. Now, he was doing it in a pew <laughs> because he was trying to pray, but he was doing it in violation of an order that said whites can only pray mm-hmm. uh, in the front row seats. And he came down with Absalom Jones and he said, no, in the house of the Lord, anyone can pray anywhere they want. And when they tried to pull Richard Allen and Absalom Jones out of their uh, kneeling position, they stayed down. Um, so they kneeled in protest, and then they got up and walked out of the segregated church, started their own churches. But what Allen did is, like Anthony Benizet, um, he coupled his religious uh, protest and activism with a powerful uh, pamphleteering um, uh, protest. So he wrote several pamphlets of protest during the 1790s and early 1800s where he made clear for all readers his anti-slavery and anti-racist vision. Um, so again, this is why I think he's a powerful founding figure, because he's trying to speak to the Adams and Jeffersons and Hamiltons and Washingtons of the world. He has a eulogy of George Washington right. um, a, which is in, a magnificent. in 1799, which is pre, uh, republished in three cities. Um, and in that eulogy, he not only celebrates Washington, but he criticizes the other founders and all of American culture for holding on to slavery, um, holding on to slaves. And it's interesting to think about that as not only an abolitionist act, but a founding act. Someone mm-hmm. who's trying to shape American policy for the betterment of society. Yep. And, and other African Americans are doing that at the same time. They're uh, publishing, they're lecturing, uh, they're giving sermons that are anti-slavery in nature uh, the Black Anti-Slavery Writing Project uh, has cataloged the, the writings of African Americans between 1760 and 1829, and so far they've come up with about 1,800 different items. So there's a lot of writing by African Americans. It's not that they are everywhere, you know, that black publications are basically overwhelming society, but they're a part of the revolutionary world, and they're a part of that dialogue over what rights and liberties mean, and they're trying to shape it with an abolitionist end. I think this this gets us um, a little bit to that famous meeting. Um, Gary Nash has described it very beautifully. Yeah. Um, 1816, 1817? Yeah, yeah, around 1817 in Richard Allen's we're, church. We're moving forward a little bit here, yeah. but we're crossing over the Haitian and, and Virginia revolts. of. Uh, but yeah. uh, I think it's important to go there now. Yeah. Um, Describe that meeting and what well, so the importance is, of it. This is ostensibly supposed to be a discussion about colonization in which black leaders like Richard Allen and, co- and James Ford... And colonization is? So the, the colonization movement develops uh, first in the early 1800s after uh, Gabriel's Rebellion in Virginia yeah. where white leaders like Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe say, if, if we're going to really confront slavery, we have to not only emancipate people of color, but uh, export them... Uh, to some other location, perhaps overseas. So there's, by, so there, there is um, a brief. There's something like 300 free blacks in Virginia yep. prior to 1783, yep. and then there, I think there are 10,000. I yep. mean, there, there, there are more free blacks than they're manumitted somehow. Absolutely. But, uh, but there they are. Right. So that's insignificant um, compared to the number of slaves still enslaved people in Virginia, but still compared to 300, it tells you something has happened. There are protests by the middling sort, as they would be called, against abolition Um, from James County and York uh, County, I believe, James City County, Um, other, perhaps other places. Um, 
So, the, but there's a there's a there's a grindingly slow movement. Washington then frees his slaves on the condition of his wife's death. Yep. Um, that, however, is then followed as fate would have it by Gabriel's um, attempted rebellion of 1801, yep. which scares the crap out of any yeah. slave owner. Yeah. Um, and begins to begin to think of then what happens when the right. too many free blacks. When you've got a lot of free blacks and still yeah. a lot of enslaved people, right. are we going to turn into Jamaica, right. um, which has been the fear of Virginia since right. the, since slavery right. was enacted? A majority black society. A majority black society. Yeah. Exactly. What happens with race war? That's going to be even if there there's going to be race prejudice, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So that's, and what's neat about that is it, it links up to what Richard Allen and black founders think they're doing. They realize in many parts of the United States that there's um, a majority mainstream kind of white sensibility, right? Blacks right. are outnumbered in many places except in the deep south and certain parts of Virginia. So when Richard Allen is talking about equality, interracial harmony, he's trying to build a bridge of understanding. Mm -hmm. And this scares the hell out of Thomas Jefferson and James Monroe. So it's not just a slave rebellion in 1800 that scares them. It's this idea that after emancipation, black and white are going to live together mm -hmm. uh, in some sort of purported harmony, that blacks will have political rights, that they'll vote, that they may even become office holders. Who knows? Maybe they'll be a black president someday. Mm -hmm. So Jefferson starts to think about these things, and those fears intensify. And after Gabe's Rebellion, he and others start to support colonization, and that becomes a full-scale national movement, the American Colonization it's, Society is it's, formed in I would say it's, it's really an Upper South yes, thing. It's yes. really, I don't think, Kentucky, Virginia, Maryland, right. I mean, people in the Deep South hate it. And they're dedicated to exporting uh, emancipated uh, blacks and uh, free people of color fear that there will be coerced uh, sure. exportations as well. But the other side of the coin is that in these decades from the death of Washington in 1799 where... Richard Allen hopes that his eulogy will convince people that there's an alternate way, that emancipation can be peaceable, that integration and equality will be the order of the day. Um, Richard Allen really believes that his words will make a difference. And in the early 1800s, uh, down to the time of the American Colonization Society, the opposite happens. There's this great reaction against emancipation, not only in the Upper South, but in the North. There's uh, this kind of racial retrenchment. Some people have called it the beginning of racial modernity where whites' uh, attitudes about emancipation harden in the North. And so Richard Allen and James Ford and other black leaders get really despondent. And they actually reach out to certain members of the Colonization Society mm -hmm. because they think maybe our destiny, African-American destiny, should be overseas where blacks will have political power. So Richard Allen... Uh, and James Fortin report on these discussions to a mass meeting of about 3,000 people in Richard Allen's Mother Bethel Church, which is now fully independent by this time. Um, and they are literally shouted down by the black masses. It's, it's an say, extraordinary moment. Yes, it's, it's a really powerful it's moment. It's a powerful moment in American history, I think. The, the uh, African-American mainstream says to black leaders, number one, you're giving up on the American dream that we've all tried to chart. Number two... Uh, you might be able to move and actually gain political power overseas, but we will always be subject to the whims of powerful whites. So our families might be separated. That may, might be a forced colonization. Uh, we don't know what the future of colonization will be, but we see a slaveholder's plot. So they really challenge black leaders to get in step with their views. And I think it's powerful for that reason, because it shows you that there's a dynamism 
in black politics and that dynamism is being reshaped by African-Americans who are not powerful, who have not gained economic uh, uh, mm -hmm. elite status. Um, and they're looking desperately for black leaders to uh, work in unison with them. It's a place this where, corrects yeah. their vision. It's a place where we can hear the voice of the people that yeah. didn't leave those. It's records. where the bottom up. It really speaks to yeah. the, the uh, topmost layers of it's, black society. It's, it's an interesting moment, too, because in, in some ways it um, is a prologue to the fact that colonization movements, even when proposed by like Marcus Garvey, yeah. are always going to be, right. um, how shall we say, they're never going to be part of the mainstream of African-American civil rights um, agitation. But it's always there. It's always It's always there. In one way or the other, but yeah. it, it at that moment it seems to me it's almost set that there's going to be this is an American future for Africans. And uh, what, yeah, and what Garvey learns is to kind of blend those two things. He's a he's a powerful leader, but he he really garners support from the frustrated lower and lower middle classes, particularly in you know those Atlantic domains, uh, not just in New York but Baltimore. Sure. Um, Areas where people are really frustrated and feel like now their leaders need to listen to them. And so Garvey is speaking at a moment where things have changed again. Again, yeah. Um, but in Allen's time, I think what's what's really significant is that he and James Fortin listen. Yeah. And they come back and they say, okay, we've heard you. So not only will we, will, will we attack colonization, but they issue this really remarkable pamphlet about the meeting in which they say to enslaved people in the South... We've heard you and we will never voluntarily separate ourselves mm -hmm. from you. And that sets the stage for the antebellum abolitionist movement, which, yeah. again, is an alliance not only between black and white, male and female, but between enslaved people running away in the South and northern blacks. Mm -hmm. um, because the whole idea of colonization in Allen's mind is we're going to go to a refuge. And we're going to start with a kind of vanguard. And that vanguard is going to go create a beachhead. Maybe it'll be in Africa. Now not so high in African colonization, but he at least talks to African colonizationists. But more likely Haiti or some other place, maybe Canada. But the idea is it'll be a vanguard. And African Americans, enslaved people in the South say, that's not going to work for us. You need to be in step with us. And... That, I think, is one of the things that empowers that next wave of the abolition. And so this is the, um, this is, this is in the, against the backdrop of what you refer to, others have referred to as second slavery, the second, sla yeah. the second slave system. Yep. And this is, you know, the founders actually did think, uh, I mean, I, I know Washington best on this, is that he certainly thought slavery was doomed because it was stupid. Um, and it was, uh, as, as a slave owner, he saw himself, once he stopped selling, breaking up families, that means you stop selling slaves. Yes. Um, and once you stop selling slaves, there's no point to owning slaves. Yes. Because there's more and more of them and therefore less and less for them to do. And you are basically creating a uh, sort of, a, you're basically have dependents, you have uh, whom do nothing. Um, so... He was convinced that as other people followed his lead and started growing wheat in Virginia and probably, and started, moved yeah. away from a monoculture, that slavery would die a natural death. But then cotton and then a monoculture society is, uh, agricultural system is continued. Second, hence second yeah. slavery. Yeah. Um, it actually kind of, that's what a lot of textbooks say and they aren't wrong. 
So against right. abolitionism and slavery are always moving together. Yes. You know, it's yes. one of the amazing things. This abolition, this, what we've been talking right. about, abolitionism occurs almost immediately after the creation right. of the legal system of, of yes. chattel slavery. Or at the same time. Right. And then the second slavery develops, then this new abolitionist movement begins. And this is one of the main ideas of the book, is that if you don't have an abolitionist movement constantly pushing back against slavery's constantly Evolving, uh, changing, changing nature and its uh, constantly growing character, yeah. uh, it's not just going to go away. We have this idea now in certain uh, public domains that slavery would have died anyway. And, you know, that's, some of that comes from... That's, lost a, lo cause that's a lost cause. Right. <laughs> right. That's a, not a that's new a idea. But, but the point is, abolitionists are very sensitive to this. Yeah. This idea that slavery was never going to go away, that they have to keep attacking it. And to your point about the second slavery, this is a transatlantic phenomenon. Yes. So you get the success of the revolution in Saint-Domingue, which creates Haiti. But what that does is... That just shifts sugar production over to Cuba. Right. right? So Cuba becomes a major sugar-producing uh, locale. And then uh, Louisiana becomes a sugar-producing locale. So the abolitionist movement has to be attuned to the way that slavery is constantly reinvigorating itself because mm -hmm. it's producing all of these very valuable cash crops. And then cotton comes online. And so what you got is this transatlantic uh, second slavery which has really slapped that first generation of abolitionists in the face. Slavery is not going to die a, a, a calm death. Slavery is not going to be confined to certain spaces. Just because a few founding figures or a few founding states like Pennsylvania uh, issued emancipation edicts doesn't mean that uh, anti-slavery no. is going to win the day. And that's why by the 1820s the th and 1830s, you get a kind of second wave of the abolition movement to match the rise of the second slavery. Mm -hmm. So there's a back and forth. It's kind of like a chess match. Yeah. Um, and because as, well, as people have been trying to say, I think since Fogel and Engerman, slavery is remarkably adaptable. Of course. And, um, you know, we've talked about this in a recent podcast with Brent Tarter. I think when we rambled through some Virginia history, um, you know, Virginia doesn't, there's an idea that Virginia goes into senescence after 1830. Right. In fact, actually, it becomes extraordinarily rich yes. because it's selling slaves south. Absolutely. Its biggest product is people. Yes. And the wealth, Virginia wallows in wealth after 1830. And African Americans. And so does the rest of the Upper South. Yes. Kentucky, and, Maryland, Delaware, right. even. And a new generation of African American agitators in the first decades of the 18th, uh, 19th century monitor yes. and write on that. And then that new wave of abolitionists, black and white, start to write on it and track it. And so that economy based on the selling of people is being illuminated. Yes. And people cannot get away from it. And this, of course, is what's agitating slaveholders. They can't do what they think they have a prerogative to do. Let's. Um, we're running out of time. We're not even halfway through the book, which is good that people can read it. Um, I guess that's, <laughs> let's make a lemonade out of that lemon. But let's, I want, I don't want to not discuss the towering figure. People think I'm going to say Frederick Douglass. He's worth a podcast in himself always. But David Walker, yeah. who is just an amazing individual yeah. to talk about him. People talk, people, you see him in occasional PBS documentary, but yeah. more attention must be paid. Well, I love that because I think David Walker is the seminal figure of uh, a second wave abolitionism. Because he represents For so many of the changes yeah. that allow a second wave of abolition to occur. He's born free in North Carolina, um, and he's politically conscious. 
He's influenced by slave rebellion. Um, he moves up the Atlantic coast. So he's in Richard Allen's Philadelphia. He reveres Richard Allen as a pamphleteer, as an organizer, as an agitator. He eventually lands in Boston. He's nominally a used clothes salesman, but... Which is uh, which it turns out to be quite brilliant. Right, but but his used clothes shop uh, on the uh, Fisherman's Wharf allows him to interact with black as well as white sailors who are traveling the yeah. Atlantic world, learning about these new abolitionist movements, um, learning about some of the developments in the Caribbean. We'll have a link to a, society. a 1990s book, Black Jacks, which Absolutely. talks about which talks about free and enslaved sailors yes. and the yeah. sort of the way the world of the, the nautical world and yeah. the way they're able to move. An Atlantic yeah. radicalism, radicalism of the high seas, which sort of like Quakerism, is attuned to um, egalitarianism, mm. doesn't respect social stratification. Uh, is reporting on anti-slavery development. So David Walker brings all of these things together um, in his majestic pamphlet, David Walker's Appeal, which at one and the same time is um, a breathtaking attack not only on slavery, but racial injustice, right? Mm -hmm. Racial inequality, the colonization movement, but it's also a manifesto of organizing. Mm -hmm. He says to people, and he writes this in 1829, what we have to do is we have to match the rise of slavery with a match in organizing. Mm -hmm. He's already been an organizer in the General Colored Association in Boston, so he's an activist himself. But he says, we have to get down to the grassroots. We have to organize enslaved people. This movement has to be kind of centered around enslaved people's attitudes, uh, feelings. Um, uh, we have to uh, kind of bring all of this grassroots organizing to bear on political institutions. So if if political leaders say abolition is insensitive, it's uh, going to raise up all sorts of sectional trouble, he says our only response is, so what? We have to organize people into an angry mass. And that becomes the calling card for William Lloyd Garrison and Frederick Douglass and uh, Lydia Maria Child, that second wave of abolitionists that develops in the 1830s and 40s. They're all kind of bringing David Walker's vision to fruition. This is immediate abolitionism. Mr. Immediate abolition. Right? I, I, one th brief thing. Uh, I very illuminating for me, his appeal to the Declaration of Independence yeah. is there is a line, it seems to me, that goes through him and Frederick Douglass and Lincoln's uh, hallowing, setting up the Declaration of Independence as the key, interpretive key to the Constitution, all the way to Martin Luther King and letter yeah. from a Birmingham jail. Yeah. And that, and with the that moment where Richard Allen and James Fortin backed down from colonization, seemed to me extraordinarily important right. in, in African-American and by which I mean American history, and yeah. that it links the cause of abolitionism, the cause of African-American civil rights, to the Declaration and to the constitutional documents, really, yes. um, in, in an important way. He doesn't want to burn the Declaration of Independence. He wants people to actually believe it. Yes, and this is the eternal debate about David Walker. Is he calling for slave rebellion, or is he calling for uh, a final... Um, effort at reforming American society with the Declaration at the center. Either way, the Declaration is, in his eyes, a powerful instrument of yes. change because if you want to have a rebellion, the Declaration says that's fine as long as you declare it to the world why uh, you're rebelling, uh, the nature of your oppression. And mm -hmm. so David Walker checks off those boxes <laughs> and he right. says, here's why we're protesting and rebelling. But if you're going to reform American society, the Declaration is also a powerful tool because it says everyone's created equal and the Declaration envisions an interracial democracy where all 
of the vestiges of bondage and subjection will wither and die. And so you could argue that Walker is also in a last gasp effort saying to whites, you have one more chance at reform before we countenance physical rebellion. And so to me, the favorite passage, the eternal passage in David Walker's appeal is where he says, do I have to read the declaration to you? Do I have to literally quote to you all men are created equal? And he has these exclamation points just ringing out his own reading of the declaration. It's not a gentle reading of the declaration. It's a powerful, loud, screaming reading of the declaration that I think does justice to what Jefferson wanted. Hmm. We're moving towards the end of our time, uh, but I wanted to quickly, if you could explain, this seems to me Walker and trying to persuade, trying to reason with people. Um, I don't, who really cares what he thinks about the declaration? He's, even if he's just using it, quote unquote, to like get to people, he's still trying to persuade them using that text. Is that an example of moral suasion, what they were calling moral suasion? Moral suasion, I think, is many things to many people. Yeah. It could be a radical form of nonviolent activism okay. and anti-slavery witness. It could also be um, a relatively moderate religious tactic in which you're trying to persuade sinners to come over to your side. Sure. There's a lot of room in between those two positions, but let's just focus in on this potential radicalism. Mm -hmm. So David Walker's version of moral suasion is... There is a righteous God hanging over all of us, and he's going to condemn you. The Declaration is also hanging over all of us. Mm -hmm. And slaveholders need to understand that enslaved people will enact the Declaration just as surely as colonists did in the 1770s. So his brand of moral suasion is, look, we're going to outline our grievances. We're going to tell you how bad slavery is. We're going to tell you that our slavery is 20 times worse than anything you can imagine in the British colonial relationship. And we're gonna tell you, you've gotta take care of these problems because if you don't, then we're gonna rebel. So that's his brand of moral suasion. It's a moralizing, sermonizing challenge. Other people like William Lloyd Garrison see that. And while they like the idea of converting people in a kind of much more confrontational way, uh, Garrison will strip away some of Walker's allusion to slave rebellion. Um, but for Garrison, moral suasion is also a radical tool because it's in people's faces. So if you think about the modern civil rights movement, you know, nonviolent protest, um, Martin Luther King, some of the people at Howard University, it's not moderate. Uh, it's in people's faces, it's mm -hmm. confrontational, it's aggressive, it's just nonviolent. Mm -hmm. You're really trying to take the cause to people and force them to act. That's the way Garrison interprets moral suasion. And I think David Walker had a lot to do with that. So for many years, you know, when scholars would say that moral suasion was a religious tactic and tool, um, I would say, yes, up to a point. But if you think about David Walker as the kind of reigning spirit of a new age of moral suasion, you see that it is a much more radical edge. And this is why someone like Garrison can be viewed as a very dangerous figure because he's not just sermonizing over in the corner saying, oh, we would love it if people came over to the side. He's in the streets. He's mm. printing. He's talking like David Walker. I'll, I'll end with this for you. I, I, and I say this in the book. I think um, William Lloyd Garrison is the first Elvis figure in American society, <laughs> which is to say he's speaking 
in ways that people associate with African-American radicalism. Mm -hmm. But he's doing it um, from his position of privilege in white society, relative privilege. But he gets dragged through the streets. He gets thrown into prison. He writes and speaks like David Walker. He uses exclamation points. And when he says, you know, no one is going to shut me up, he's really taking a page from David Walker's playbook. So we're... Not going to be able to talk about Frederick Douglass, uh, women in the movement, the abolitionist renaissance, or any of those things, but, uh, or whether or not I would ever want to live in society with Fr William Lloyd Garrison as dictator. <laughs> the short answer is hell no. Uh, he's good to have around, but um, just keep him away from power. Right. Um, but one thing that really is strikes me, um, and I, I've always mentioned this in class um, when I teach slavery, because I teach early American history. It's, of course I do. Um, slavery is the oldest human institution we have a record of, just yeah, about. Sure. It's in cuneiform. It's, yeah. it's 10,000 years old. Absolutely. It probably began when the first sufficiently developed Homo sapiens knocked a Neanderthal over the head and yeah. dragged him back and put him into captivity. Right. And yet, within 200 years, <laughs> it was gone. Now, it's not really gone, and the modern activists would say, well, sure. there's as much slavery now. Um, and that's partly because slavery is protean and able to assume many forms, debt, yep. slavery, peonage, many yep. things. And it's really extraordinary, isn't it? That yes. It all happened so fast. This is the power of the abolition movement. We, again, in the public mind of many Americans, think that slavery was going to wither and die. And I suppose that these are the kinds of um, fantasies and fallacies that people have to live with. And also now, that right. it accompanies another fallacy is that we invented slavery. Absolutely. And that, and that, and then it would have gone anyway because it's not modern. Absolutely. No, but, but abolitionists are there to yeah. make sure that someone is fighting slavery and hopefully to the death. Yeah. The key though is, and I think, so we're in Charlottesville recording this, Jefferson notes it in this, in various places, the type of slavery that, uh, comes online in transatlantic society is different. It's a racialized slavery and it's a slavery of perpetuity. Mm. So not only are people of African descent now, uh, according to new laws, uh, the only groups that can be enslaved, but that slavery is supposed to last through a bloodline. Yeah, I mean, and it can only be interrupted with a man. Roman slavery was also, well, right. it was also over in perpetuity. It could stop, it though, could, but, at, but what, at what, someone's life. What's really different, though, is in second slavery, manumission yes. is ended. Yes. Now, absolutely. Roman slavery had a very simple form of manumission, right. and you could always do it. Right. Um, they did not conceive of a slave system in which there was no manumission. That's right. That's right. And in which enslaved people couldn't rise and even have rights and or, sort of be the face of something beyond bondage. You know, the, the classic formulation, which... Some people disagree with that slavery is social death. Orlando Patterson um, has some merit in the idea that for racial, for the system of racialized slavery, you cannot have a people who are slaves with some sort of public face or public power, right? That would defeat the whole purpose of property, of property in perpetuity. And, and this is what Jefferson says, makes emancipation and abolition so difficult. Mm -hmm. He outlines it. He says that form of traditional or ancient slavery was different. It was people of, uh, you know, one racial type enslaving uh, Another a group racial. of 
well, of a, of a Roman, similar race, but different religion or, or whatever. Right? Romans thought yes. Romans thought Greeks are really different, right? Right. But, but what he's saying right. is, we have a in his mind, we have a fundamental. Yeah. He accords it to race no. difference, and he says we don't know what to do with people who are fundamentally different in, in whatever way. Um, and he says that's why I think emancipation can't work because we can't have these two groups of people living together side by side. You know the. The, the joke in, in the Mediterranean is uh, un fatsu un razza, right? One face, one race. So yeah. whether you're Greek, you're Turkish, whatever, we're kind of all the same. And Jefferson, whether or not that's fully true, there is a tradition of that. There is. Jefferson does not see that. No. He sees black and white as fundamentally different, fundamentally different and therefore emancip uh, emancipation and manumission can't work. And that's why I would argue to bring it all together, mm -hmm. the abolitionists are the ones that give us our sense of American modernity. They're the ones who argue that manumission can work without colonization, that everyone is equal in society, that black as well as white, male as well as female, uh, have uh, a common set of rights, that they flow from the Declaration, that they flow from revealed religion. Um, it's, it's not f only from Jefferson or the founders that we get these things. Abolitionists are American founders. And if we understand that, then I think we have a leg up on uh, our modern struggle with race. Because you could argue either we're still trying to live out the long emancipation or we're still stuck in Jefferson's conundrum. What do we do with race? My guest today has been Richard Newman. He's the author of Abolitionism, a very short introduction available from Oxford University Press, wherever fine books are sold. Richard, thank you for being with us. It's been a pleasure. I really love the podcast. Thanks a lot. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Rodat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.